Welcome to the Here Be Dragon podcast. My name is Jake Lefebvre. I'm joined, as always, uh, by Brett Landry, and we have a special guest, our first reoccurring guest on the podcast, uh, Dr. Ian Proven from Regent College. Uh, Dr. Proven, it is good to have you with us. Uh, Brett, why don't you just lead us into a bit of what we're going to be talking about uh, this afternoon? Yeah, um, Ian, you've got a new book that you've been working on, I know, diligently for a while now uh, from the conversations we've had. I know we've talked about the education system, and you and I have talked about various teachers that we know, and that's how I first became aware of the the new book that you're working on and and indeed have finished writing. Um, Would love to have a conversation with you around some, I, I suppose, some cultural commentary on how we might think about being Christians, uh, how to be biblically informed in the way that we interact with cultural and social issues. And uh, yeah, we'd just love to have you speak into some of those things. Why don't you maybe begin, just tell us a little bit about the book that you've written and uh, the hopes that you have, uh, the direction that that flows. Sure. Um, Well, first of all, great to be here. Thank you for having me. Um, The book is entitled Seeking What is Right, The Old Testament and the Good Life. It's a book that aims to help Christian people to read Old Testament scripture along with New Testament scripture as actual guidance for life. I think it's true to say that many Christians find the Old Testament challenging, maybe, and uh, I'm hoping to help them to understand that we, we do need to read the whole of scripture to shape in terms of shaping our faith and our life, and that there are good ways of doing that and not so good ways of doing that. And so a lot of that's going to be looking at how Christians in the past have read the Old Testament uh, in terms of social, political, personal issues and making assessments of how far it was good, how far it was problematic. And then toward the end, I, I bring that sort of paradigm of reading Scripture back onto our present situation. So that's uh, the, the brief version of the book. And some of that is going to have to do, you said there's the political, there's the social, there's the personal. Some of that's going to have to do with the personal uh, as it pertains to our identity and who we are. And I know you've, we've conversed about this before, but the, how do I find out who I am um, as it pertains to a number of these different social issues on an individual level and then on a, on a societal level? And how that could be, and I think indeed is, influenced in the political realm. Um, of the, the world that we live in. I mean, all, all three of us live in Vancouver. Uh, this is where we work and minister and live with our families and our friends, and we're certainly informed by and formed by the, the environment we find ourselves in. So how does a person move into that identity side of things? Well, I think the question, who am I, is perhaps the driving question of our time. Mm. Uh, different moments of history have their big questions. You know, who is God? What is creation? I think the driving question of our time is who am I? And then the, the next question is, and how do I find out? How do I know? Um, <coughs> um, so, you know, for many people, I guess, they, they never get to the second question because they think it's kind of obvious, right? The, the answer is obvious, but actually, if you think about it just for a short while, you will realize that through history, people have had very, very different ideas about how to answer that question. Um, and certainly very different ideas about where to look to get the answer to that question. Our contemporary tendency in a city like Vancouver 
and probably this is true of much of the, the world now, our answer is we look inside ourselves. We, we look into the depths of our being and we discover there who we really are. And then our responsibility is to live that out and everyone else's responsibility is to leave us alone to, to live that out. I think that would be a reasonable way of describing the culture in which we live. And that then has all sorts of ramifications that go out from there that we can talk about. But that, that's the fundamental idea that we look inside ourselves. Um, the Christian answer to that question is very, very different. In fact, I think the apostles would have had a fit if you had said to them, we find out who we are by looking inside ourselves, because Scripture says, well, no, actually, the only reliable basis for knowing who we are is to look to God and God's character and God's revelation and the truth of who God is. And so who am I is already a biblical question. Psalm 8, what is a human being? And the psalmist there, in answering the question, goes back to the book of Genesis, essentially, and says, well, I'm a creature made a little lower than God. Genesis says, I'm made in God's image. And so one of the points of real misunderstanding, I think, between contemporary Christians and the culture at large is that we're coming at these questions from diametrically opposite points of view. So that's probably a good starting point before we get on to specifics. And, you know, I can just ask uh, in there, obviously, um, you know, the Old Testament talks about God forming a people for himself. Uh, what would you say to those who would suggest that this question of who am I is a bit too individualistic for the Bible? That the, the Old Testament narrative is one of a, a people being formed and that it really doesn't carry over because that's, you know, just like a modern sort of understanding of, of the person. How would you respond uh, to a thought like that? Well, certainly God is calling a people uh, in the Old Testament, but that's not where the story begins. The story mm. begins with creation and with the, the mind-blowing, radical, unprecedented thought that every human being, male and female, is made in God's image. And therefore, are of, that we're all, every human being is of equal worth and value. The theologians have a big word for this. We all have the same ontological status. Mm. That's a great word to throw around. Impress your friends. Yeah. But it's a useful word. These big words have their purpose. It's a kind of shorthand, so you don't have to say a paragraph. So when we say that each human being is ontologically of equal value and worth, no matter what their gender, race, ethnicity, or whatever, that's where the story begins. Uh, something goes wrong with creation in the biblical story, and then God calls a people out to, to help deal with that. But that's the order of events. Um, uh, right from the beginning, the, the fundamental value of the, human, the ordinary human person is asserted in the strongest possible terms. So, I know in, uh, I think it's in Seriously Dangerous Religion, which is a book that you wrote, um, you quoted Alistair McIntyre. So McIntyre says, I can only answer the question of what I am to do if I can answer the prior question of what story or stories do I find myself apart. And then, and then you said, without an understanding of the story in which we find ourselves, we lack direction and purpose. We do not know what to do next. We don't even understand what we're doing now. Yeah. So that's that follow-up from the who I am, right? The, the, who, who am I? And what do I do? But there's a there's a, a, a pri maybe a prior question of how do I find out? 
Yeah, well, the question of the story we're in is absolutely crucial here. And again, people who don't reflect very much seem to think the answer is obvious. It's the story my culture gives me. It's the story my family gave me or my tribe or whatever. But the interesting question is, yes, but given that there are so many stories, how do I know which is the right one or which are the right ones possibly? And which are the clearly wrong ones? Because they're not all saying the same thing. These stories that we, these big stories about life are very, very different in character. And they lead on to very different social, political, personal implications, right? So um, knowing which story you, is really the, the true one, or to begin somewhere less controversial, which are the truer ones? At least asking that question of evaluation is, is important. And in fact, we all do it unconsciously without even realizing. All the time we're making these decisions, it's just that we very often don't bring them up for examination, right? What are the stories that, you know, you talk about the ontological significance, as you said, is shorthand. Maybe give us an example of, of a, a kind of story that defines a human being differently than the scriptures would define a yeah. human being, God's story. Well, let me give you two, and they're rather different, but in a strange way related to each other. Think about what the Greek philosopher Aristotle said about slaves. Slaves are absolutely not of equal ontological status in Aristotle's teaching. Slaves are slaves by nature, right? They're not just human beings who have unfortunately fallen into slavery. They're, they're actually, you might say in our language, created to be slaves, right? So there's a whole philosophy there that produces a view of the human person. He also did not have a high view of women either, by the way. So, and then think of something rather different. Think of Hinduism, where you have this enormous caste system and the people at the very bottom, the Dalit, they used to be called the untouchables. They are really, in no meaningful sense, actually human in, in that system. And there are gradations of worth and value as you go up the system. And it's not accidental because the Hindu worldview is what has produced this system, which is why the caste system has proved to be so enduring, even in the face of a lot of modern pressure because it's deeply rooted in, the, in that whole world view, that way of looking at the world. Yeah, the idea being that the, the karma in your life and the ascension or descension up and down the caste system of being, right? And so mm. I, I think I'm correct on this. I'm asking, I'm not saying. <laughs> that, that's, that's, what, that's where they get their point of view, that there's people of lesser significance and value and greater significance and value. Yes, and you, you have the opportunity, of course, to rise up the hierarchy, but at the point of social or political reality. This is not an equal society. So one author writing on um, Hinduism um, ha has put it very nicely. I'm paraphrasing him rather than quoting him. He says that to the classical Hindu, the idea that all human beings are equal would just make no sense at all. But there's nothing in that worldview that that would lead you to believe that. Which is also, and I think interestingly, held by people on the lower end of that scale. Hmm. Maybe because the worldview would tell them, this is where you belong. Yes, you may rise up in the, in the system, but you are of inherently less worth. Yeah. 
And, uh, and, and there's an acceptance of that. Well, th- there's a resignation to it. Uh, I'm not sure. <laughs> acceptance may be putting it too strongly. One of the reasons the Dalits are turning to Christian faith in such large numbers, even as we speak, is because of their recognition that yes. the Hindu worldview offers them nothing. And that's what I was driving at, yeah. was the idea that there is a different story to embody. There's Absolutely. a different story to be a part of. So here's an interesting case of very different worldviews and how they work. I heard a, a Dalit Christian preaching at First Baptist Church here in Vancouver a number of years ago. And whereas we tend in, in our um, North American evangelical culture to, to think of texts like John chapter 3, verse 16 as the text, you know, God so loved the world. He said the text that changed his life was the Genesis 1 text when his brother, I think it was, first told him that in the Christian worldview, God made everyone in his own image. And he said that was the, that was the moment when he was grabbed by the, by the biblical idea. Um, and you can understand why. If, if you lived in that culture, of course, that would be just as radical as it was in the ancient Near East when the Israelites first passed on that idea. The idea that, uh, back to what you said about Aristotle, in the, the view that some people were created for, if we could import our language into Aristotelian ethics and the idea mm-hmm. that some people are created to be slaves, that there is a certain class of society that is needed, uh, but they're not, they're not of equal worth or dignity. Uh, how did the gospel understanding of, of what it means to be human like a biblical understanding of that. How, how does that intersect with the world of Aristotle's view? Like where, where you have historically this clash between this, this prominent theolo- uh, uh, philosophical figure, but then this, this theology of dignity and men and women being created in God's image. Well, this is why the gospel both terrified and transformed, eventually, the Roman Empire. Because you're coming at the whole set of questions from a different point of view. So pagan Greco-Roman culture was famously uh, harsh and lacking compassion towards the less fortunate and so on. It was a world in which people dumped babies that were, for one reason or another, not wanted um, on rubbish heaps. It was it was a really rather brutal world, a world in which uh, it was thought to be a great birthday treat for a young boy to be taken to the Colosseum, you know, to watch wild animals ripping people to pieces and gladiators fighting. And so in that world, and not just because of Aristotle, because of other Greek philosophies like Stoicism, for example, the notion of compassion being a good thing that we take for granted now in the Western world, that, that would have been completely incomprehensible. The reason that we take it for granted in the Western world, of course, is because the Judeo-Christian tradition has shaped the Western world by this point, and so we don't think about it. But So the gospel really came right up against uh, Greco-Roman ideology, as represented by people like Aristotle, but it was a bit of a mishmash. It was, a, it was more than that going on. Um, but, I mean, you, you look at how the gospel led to very different treatment of uh, women in the early church, slaves in the early church, very different treatment of your non-Christian neighbors as you would have thought of them. So during the plagues, most people flee the cities, but the Christians move in and look after their 
pagan neighbors. Why? Because they're image bearers of God. They, are, they may be your enemies, but they're image bearers of God. And so the notion of loving your enemies only merely makes sense on the basis that we're actually all God's creatures and we're all worthy of attention, right? Ian, what happens when you have, so you just mentioned there, uh, the world that we inhabit right now assumes a lot from the Judeo-Christian worldview, the dignity of people, all those sorts of things. Uh, you know, I heard a quote, and Brett, I think you know who this would be from, but uh, our culture wants the kingdom without the king. Yeah. Who's that? That's Mark Sayers out of uh, his, church, his book, Disappearing Church. Yeah. yeah. What happens, Ian, when uh, our culture... Uh, um, affirms uh, the dignity of people, uh, but doesn't know how to ground those things or to root those things into to a meaningful worldview. What, what happens in a culture like that? Um, is, it, is it a viable uh, story that can last for, for a period of time? Well, it, it might be viable, but I think at the end of the day, it's going to be oppressive because it doesn't have the resources within itself really to, to pull this off, right? So... I think it would be true to say that, that post-Christian culture is it's as if we have a situation where our ancestors paid into this huge bank account and we are now drawing on the bank account, but it's gradually depleting, you know, and we're running out of money because nobody's putting any more money in, right? So we inherit these ideas. Uh, if you were to ask the average person on the street you know, to describe what a good life looks like, it would still pretty much in a city like Vancouver, it would still, broadly speaking, um, mimic a, a Christian worldview. But of course, once you remove this idea of the importance of the individual from the story, the individual essentially becomes God. I think that would be the biggest thing. And once the individual is God... And once it's the individual's articulation of their story, their identity, that that's what really matters. Um, that there, there are no boundaries and constraints anymore, really, to that. And I think what we're seeing at the moment is the slow and steady unraveling of a kind of pseudo-Christian view of the human being, um, combined with a kind of utopian politics that does want the kingdom right now and we will introduce it by legislation and force, right? Um, and of course what will happen is, what always happens is that uh, the oppressors get defeated but the oppressed then take over as the new oppressors because you still don't have any incentive to love your enemies and quite, quite the reverse. And you can see this at the moment in the way these ideological things are these ideological forces are, are playing out over against each other. So it really fights against the idea, well, it doesn't fight against it. It, it, it swaps out who the authority is. If you look at a, a traditional view of the human person, there were, there were traditionally views of what it meant to be human given down by authoritative structures, whether they be Hinduism, uh, a Greek, you know, Greco-Roman philosophy of what it means to be human, or you have the Judeo-Christian tradition that we inherit from Genesis through to Revelation. I mean, all the way, the whole biblical vision of what it means to be human and how to flourish as a human being, it's grounding our authority in something other than ourselves, like the idea that we're not able to define ourselves. We need definition from outside to tell us what it means to be human and how to live and who I am and bring definition to it. But as we locate the authority in the individual, as opposed to in some sort of transcendent picture, the more we do that, it strikes me as we get more fragmented. 
Well, we do, and, and leaving religion out of it, leaving Christian faith out of it, it just seems to me to be a form of madness, because the idea that, that human societies over many generations have worked things out slowly and, and, and conservatively and over time and have passed down enormous wisdom and that we in our individual selves occupy this stream of history and that somehow now we individually, even from a very young age, know more than all of these ancestors, right? So now a child apparently looks inside themselves and tells us all who they are. And we're supposed to, you know, just take that very, very, very seriously. And this seems to be, to me, to be just just crazy. I mean, leaving religion out of it, is this, is this a sensible way to, to view society? It's really interesting. We were talking this morning in our preaching meeting, uh, and we were reading uh, John Chrysostom on, on John uh, 1, and the Word was, was with God, Word was God. And Chrysostom talks about how uh, John is making an appeal to the ancients who are listening that, like, you know, this God, he was before all these things, and on the basis of him being before everything, oh, okay, well then, like, clearly that's the more foundational truth, the foundational logos, reality. And I was saying to Brett and the other guys, it seems like it's kind of flipped in our age, where what is new, it seems to be like the authoritative reality, and we don't necessarily, I mean, I'm sure this is not the case across the board, but on the whole, at least in my experience, like, what is old, it's a C.S. Lewis chronological snobbery, Right. Uh, what, what is old is, is sort of like, well, it, it's old, and because this is new, it's therefore better. Well, yes, and that's one of the reasons why the Old Testament gets marginalized, among many things that go on, because it's old, right? And we live in a culture that has come to believe, for whatever reason, um, that what is new is better, that progress is always a good thing. Uh, any kind of progress. I mean, whether it's really progress or not, just development, onward movement. And this contempt now for the wisdom of the ages, the contempt for what our elders have to say, those who have lived considerably longer than, than we, at least by a few decades, and then you extend that to your ancestors, and in the case of the church, to the wisdom of the ages. Um, I mean, to me, there's just a very fundamental question here about whether any society can survive for very long when you begin to do that, when you make that move. Because who is it now who actually arbitrates? Who is it that says, yes, this is what is right and this is what is true? I'm afraid what happens eventually is because anarchy cannot long survive. What happens is that somebody somewhere who has enough power to do it, steps in, takes control, and you, you basically move from anarchy to totalitarianism. And uh, many years ago, Os Guinness, very well-known Christian writer, I remember him saying this. I can't remember whether it was to me personally or in a book, but he basically said that without the Christian gospel uh, holding all of this stuff together, you will either get anarchy or you'll get totalitarianism eventually because that's, wow. just, that's just how it is. We have uh, glimpses of that in different nations around the world that have moved decidedly either post-Christian or they've sort of you know, rejected something to it. But it just seems as though that's not far from the truth. The totalitarianism and the anarchy, yeah. um, and whether that be reigning in our hearts or reigning in our governments, um, is certainly something that, that can come to the surface with it. I, I, it's interesting, Jake, that you're quoting, I mean, you know, we're talking about the, the desire for relevance when we're talking about liking new things. 
progressive, relevant things. And yet you're quoting Christostom, who's like a fourth century theologian, right? And, and who's, you know, he's been dead for like 1600 years or something like that. And Al- yet, alive with Christ. Oh, yeah, thank you very much. Thank you very much. We, we, we believe based Amen. upon the fruit of his work. Yes. Yeah, so, uh, but you have like, it's just interesting, the more that the church ends up in the, involved in the cultural narrative of relevance, this again goes back to Sayer's book that you were talking about, uh, quoting from, you know, we want the kingdom without the king. We, we want all of the benefits of the kingdom, but we don't want to have to have the authority of the king who tells us how to live. We just want all the benefits of the kingdom. We want all the fruit without actually having to obey. And, uh, you know, and he writes about this, and I, I'm going to, uh, butcher the paraphrase, but uh, but essentially, where he he's writing about this, saying it, where we desire relevance as the church, and and any place that we give ourselves over to stay in the relevance conversation, what happens is in a post-Christian world is that you you know pre-Christian evangelism was to go in and almost colonize places, and so there was a lot of colonial missions that happened. So there was colonizing of, of power structure worldview countries and they would move in and they would bring not just the gospel but they would bring their way of life their culture their you know etc and that's well documented but he's saying in a post-christian environment what ends up happening is when the church tries for relevance and is aiming for relevance we actually end up getting ourselves colonized by the the thinking of the world that we're in so all of a sudden we're actually in the name of relevance giving over our christian worldview or our christian way of thinking and the story that we're a part of and we're actually inviting in other other ways of of reckoning with being human other ways of thinking about this so that we can stay relevant in the conversation and he's what he argues for in his book is is something he calls resilience and he just says what we need is is actually a cultural engagement but done with gospel resilience and so you're not you're not drinking deeply from that well and allowing it to co-opt the gospel story. You're actually engaging that conversation, not from a point of wanting to be relevant, but from a point of gospel resiliency, knowing that the story that we're a part of, and I mean, for Christians, we would hold this, is true. Therefore, it will last and endure. Um, well, there's nothing quite so relevant as the truth, right? I mean, if you split truth and relevance, you just get nonsense, right? I mean, or, or worse than that actually probably not just nonsense but dangerous stuff so the question always comes back to what is the truth of the matter um so yes you're you're dead right and in the midst of all of this ideological turmoil all of these kind of attempts to be quasi-christian without christ to have the kingdom without the king i think the greatest danger for uh, for christians is that we're not op- we're we're found not operating out of the heart of our own story we're getting sucked into other people's stories things that may seem rather similar and and we think well maybe that you know we should support that well maybe you should but not without thinking about it not without really locating yourself within the the christian story so how do we get to the place though as a as a society where it's normal to allow a six, seven, eight-year-old child to define their identity and that we, we allow them to be their own authority and that we then actually uh, we stop any imposition on them and we say, well, you are who you, you know, you need to follow your heart. You are who you, you say you are. And we allow the authority to be shifted to a child not only ignoring history and, and the past, but actually now getting to the place where it does seem a bit, you know. Well, uh, we get here by a long process of 
the demolition of the Christian worldview and the culture we're in. I can't think of any previous parallel culture uh, that would have taken such a view of children, for example. Uh, and I don't want to defend, by the way, what every previous culture has said and done with children. Don't misunderstand me. But, I mean, the, I think the, the essential answer to your question, in a very brief span, Brett, is probably this, that with the rise of the Romantic movement, which itself was a reaction against modernity, which itself was a kind of quasi-Christian thing without... Christian theology at the heart of it. So you have Romanticism as a kind of reaction to all of that. And Romanticism prioritizes uh, my feelings and my intuitions in terms of my personal identity. So these are the first free spirits, really, in a way, uh, of the modern period. The, the great poets, and, you know, people like that, of that, that kind of era. And so Romanticism has its strengths, of course. It's trying to say something important. But if that's all you have, eventually from that you get this. Because if every individual, suppose you have the quasi-Christian idea that every individual is important. The Christian idea, but now it's devolved into something else. Uh, now every person gets to say who they are and what their identity is. And eventually somebody asks the question, well, doesn't that mean children too? Who am I, even as a parent, to impose myself on a child? Surely my job is to find out, help them find out who they are. That's how we get here. And in fact, uh, I think I have here a quote that I brought here um, from the Soji curriculum in BC here that just uh, illustrates this. So Soji standing for sexual orientation and gender inclusivity? Yes, it's a, it's a part of our BC school curriculum now that is allegedly aimed at preventing bullying and harassment, but actually <laughs> aims at changing people's thinking about these issues in a very profound and, and far-reaching way. Um, and so I'm quoting here from the, the website, the Soji website. Everyone has a sexual orientation and gender identity. Children are the ones that, I, that actually decide who they are. The Soji Inclusive School will embrace all their experiences and identities. That's what a Soji Inclusive School will do, so that children can be themselves. Uh, and listen to this, a parent's task is, quote, to open up the conversation and keep it open by allowing children to question, express, and explore their individuality as they wish. Now, if we're talking about taking children seriously uh, and listening to them and all that, 100% there, right? The Christian gospel demands that we take children seriously as image bearers. This seems to me to be a very different kind of thing. And, of course, it is, in my opinion, disastrous yes. because children cannot, in fact, process that kind of stuff, particularly at young ages. Um, and so the stress that's now being laid on children to find out who they are by looking deep within right. um, and the stress that's being caused on families, not just Christian families, but families who just don't think this is a very smart idea, that stress is also huge. Yeah, so sexual orientation, gender identity... SOGI curriculum that's part of our BC public schools. Yeah. Um, maybe speak just for a moment on what, you know, what would you say to the parent whose kid is in public school, 
who is kind of aware of this because it's getting talked about a little bit in their school. Uh, and, and they're saying, look, I, I want to raise my child in the faith with, with right thinking about what it means to be human, including their sexual identity. Um, how do you, how do you like, what's step one of directing them into thinking well about this? Well, I think there are different steps to this, and I'm speaking now as a grandparent. Our, our children went through the Vancouver public school system in a, in a very different time, 20 years ago. But I am speaking as a grandparent, so I still care about this stuff a lot. And I would say there's more than one aspect to this from a Christian point of view. One aspect is how parents are dealing with the schools. Um, I am I'm somewhat alarmed at the kind of passive response that I'm seeing to this, as if it's not a big deal. But I think it is a big deal because our children spend a lot of their lives in school, a lot of their lives. Uh, to think that schools uh, don't shape them in terms of peer groups, teachers, and everything else, I think it would be a profound mistake. And so if I were the parent of a child in this current environment, I would be taking active steps to find out what my teacher my class teacher believed and what his or her intentions were in teaching my child. I would be uh, making it clear what my, where, I, where I'm coming from. I'd be doing it politely and constructively, but I would not be allowing the, the teacher to think this was no big deal. And I'd be asking to be kept informed about what was going on. Those would be, in other words, Taking responsibility as parents for your child's education. Don't delegate it to the state, even though you are happily using the state's resources, which is fine because you pay your taxes. That's good. So that's number one. And then on the other side, I would be making sure I talk to my kids all the time about what's going on and make sure that I don't just let wrong ideas sit there for a long time. I mean, I, I'm hearing countless stories now of young children coming home to their parents and saying, Mommy, Daddy, did you know that you can choose nowadays whether to be a boy or a girl? So to think that there's no indoctrination happening, that there are not people who are really pushing this in schools would be a, a very drastic mistake. So those two things, and then of course I think the church has to do a lot more in offering broader educational Opportunity. I've said this before. It's one of my little catchphrases. I'm going to make some T-shirts, you know. I love Alpha, but what about Beta and Gamma would be my T-shirt, right? Alpha's great, but I think we have to recognize that the way we are often doing church in this environment now is completely inadequate to the tasks that now confronts us. So those three things, perhaps. It's the... Um it's the experience, for sure, in, in my pastoral ministry in Vancouver, nine years now that we've lived here. Also having three daughters in public school. Uh, it's certainly my experience that it's ramped up over time. Uh, we've seen in our daughter's elementary school three successive principals um, with, with three different approaches, but all under the leadership of the school board and the provincial curriculum. And we've seen the teachers be pushed into a, a, a narrower shoot, if I could say it that way, where they're, it's narrowed down in terms of what they're allowed to say or not say or what they have to communicate because it is curriculum-based. It's not optional sort of, you know, make sure that nobody's bullied. It's actually curriculum-based teaching. Uh, and yet we still have three children in the public school system. 
And so I think there's a, an, an alarmist tendency in us if we're afraid, which I think is not necessarily wrong. It's a, if there's a shark in the water, you should be afraid and you should do things that would then mitigate the risk that you have to you and yours in the water in the immediate vicinity of where you have seen a shark fin swimming around. I think that, that fear is right in that way. Alarmist responses to it could be things like, I'm taking my kids out of that system. I'm going to pull them out of there. I'm going, And sometimes those are the right things to do. You have to make sure that you're finding good options, and and I think there's ways to do that. There's other good things. I know, you know, Jake, your children are in Christian school, and uh, and I know, you know, you've got family who are involved in in Christian school, Ian, and the so, and then there's kids, there's there's people who are homeschooling, and I think all three of those are fine options. Yeah. I think the important thing is, you know, number one, as parents, that we're walking in discipleship relationships with our children. So, for instance, we're from Alberta originally, my wife and I. And all three of our daughters were born in central Alberta. And so the environment that our family are going through, there are family who are Christian who are in central Alberta, have children relatively the same age as ours uh, who are raised in, a, 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 raised in the church and in a Christian school. They're not talking about sexuality yet, even in their life. Uh, whereas we started talking to our kids about sex when they were like five because they were going into kindergarten in a public school system in Vancouver. And that means that there's a different uh, ideological bent within the, some of the teachers, not all of them. Some of them are, are I mean, we've, what, there are great teachers without getting into names and things who are followers of Jesus in the public school system who are super faithful and are doing their best to walk the line of faithfulness to God and working for the government. Um, but yeah, the alarmist tendency that, that a lot of us have is probably not the right place to go. It's to take those things and allow those impulses to form how we form our children so that when they come home from school in grade three and say, today, our teacher told us that we can choose if we're a boy or a girl, that they follow that up with sort of, our teacher told us we can choose to be a boy or a girl, comma, but that's not what the Bible says and that's not what you've taught us and so I've discerned the error in their teaching. Like that's the response that you want to have in your children. Right. Uh, yeah, just to be clear, all of our, I think I said this, all of our children went through public school. I believe in public school. Um, strong supporter of Christians being in the public square and so on. Um, however, I have to say that this is not 20 years ago. And whatever decision you make about how exactly to school your children, it should be made out of the heart of our Christian story, not accidentally buying into other people's stories. And you'll then have to deal with whichever challenges come up, because there are also challenges yeah. to Christian schools and homeschooling. So whichever way you go, you're going to have to be thinking Christianly about yeah. it, right? Yeah, I mean, one of the things I think about, too, um, you know, Brett, your kids will have the benefit of growing up in the public school and living out their faith in a real sort of, in some ways, antagonistic environment, whereas my concern for my boys is that they'll see a lot of nominal Christianity a lot of people following Jesus in name only and not living like a radical sort of discipleship that Jesus calls us to. And so, no, I, you know, I love what you're saying about taking responsibility for discipling our, our children. And even uh, as I worked in children's ministry before Christ City and, and working in children's ministry, leading children's ministry at Christ City, one of the things we always talked about is like, we are not the primary disciples of your children. Uh, we, we want to come alongside you and resource you and be the church. And I, and I love what you're saying about the church, Ian. But at the end of the day, like we have maybe one, two hours a week with your kids and you have, you know, how many hundred? And so, or maybe a hundred. I'm not good at math. I'm a theology guy. Six hours a day. Yeah. Again, not good at math. Doesn't help me. Um, all that to say, 
primary disciples. I think of Deuteronomy 6 as one of those passages to really guide and shape that as well too. And I think taken out of the Soji conversation for a second, but talking with people who are working downtown Vancouver, who are starting to navigate, okay, not starting, have already been very much navigating what does it look like to be faithful to Jesus in my architecture firm or at my tech company or whatever that looks like. Um, if their parents don't know what that looks like, yeah. um, you, know, you know what yeah. I'm saying? And I think that's where we're going to be pushed uh, in, in probably, and I would say years to come, but it's happening right now, is where there will be certain vocations that are just no longer friendly to the follower of Jesus, where you cannot as, as a conviction, you could not serve in that capacity or you could not agree with what you're asked to agree with. And so I think about, you know, I, and I've preached about this. I think there's going to be a time where it's going to be very difficult for a follower of Jesus to practice law. I think there's going to be very difficult for a follower of Jesus to practice medicine in a lot of different areas um, due to euthanasia, physician assisted suicide and abortion and different things that you're going to be asked to agree to in order to practice medicine in our province with a, a provincial healthcare, national healthcare system where you're working for the government. It's going to be sign on the line. And if you won't sign on the line, you can't play. Like you need to be this tall to ride this ride. And if you're not willing to do it, you can't. And I think the same will be happening for uh, teachers in the public school system. I think there's going to need to be um, some, you know, I, I mean, um, Rod Dreher, what, what's his book called? Benedict Option. You know, I, I'm not a huge fan of the Benedict Option. And if you haven't heard of that book, it's worth looking at. But I do like some of the things that he's saying because he's thinking creatively about what this might look like. And he's thinking creatively by looking at history in terms of classical education and things. But there, there will come a time, and I don't think we're supposed to withdraw from society and, and sort of have our own little cloistered environment where we um, you know, make sure that we all follow Jesus faithfully and to hell with the rest of the world, which is not, in fact, what he's saying, which is a caricature of what he's saying. But I don't think we're supposed to do that and withdraw completely. But there will be areas of society that we have to withdraw from because of our convictions about what it means to be human and follow Jesus. And, and there's just an engagement with culture idea that we need to wrestle with in our generation right now that is different than it was, like you said, 20 years ago. Very different. Um, and part of what's happening, and I, perhaps people haven't really caught up with this, is that Christians are now becoming part of a minority culture. Mm. We probably are in many parts of the country, not everywhere, of course, and not even everywhere in BC because it's a very diverse province. But certainly... I think there is that sense of beginning to suffer the indignities that minorities always tend to suffer, whoever they may be, however well, however they may be defined. Um, so that's going to take some getting used to, and it's going to take some very serious thinking uh, as families and as churches about how we're, we're going to handle that. I mean, maybe our worst fears won't become realized. I think one always needs to pray and to hope for change, revival, generosity on the part of one's neighbors who have power. Um, I think the book of Daniel is one of the great books um, of exile in that sense, um, because you have Daniel confronting exile, and the first thing is he's faced with a an identity issue in chapter one. He doesn't stamp his foot and yell. He goes and has a quiet word. He tries to work it out. He tries to negotiate with the empire. And it works out pretty well. But then there are the moments when, you know, you can't just negotiate because they're asking you, you know, think of Daniel 3. Now you're being asked to worship an idol. Well, you, you can't. In that case, God steps in 
not always does God step in. And by the end of the book, you have people who are only rescued by the resurrection of the dead, right? Um, Nebuchadnezzar, though, you know, has an astonishing change of perspective. So I think the book of Daniel is a very nuanced book and a very helpful book for us in exile because it's saying, I think what it's saying is this, always live out of your own story. As much as you can, try to live peaceably with your neighbors, even if they're very different from you. There are going to be times when you have to stand up, but it takes wisdom to know which ones those are. And don't lose the hope that in the short term, empires can be converted. But in the long run, nothing is going to really get better until the kingdom of God comes. That's my summary of the book of Daniel. I think that's a wonderful paradigm mm. for, for us. It's got the flexibility we need to not just react out of fear, uh, not think we have to be yelling all the time. But, uh, you know, I, I don't think we should be yelling at anybody, but I do think citizens of Canada have a right to go and speak to their school teachers, for example, about things that they're not happy about. After all, we pay our taxes just like everybody else, right? So... When you talk about exile as a as a posture, I mean, there's a certain exilic identity for us who follow Jesus in the sense that we're that Philippians 3.20, we're citizens of the kingdom of heaven, we're, we're dwelling here. How can that inform maybe other areas of our lives as well, that exilic identity? Well, I think exile is a pretty important biblical metaphor, actually. It's not just about the Jews going into exile in Babylon. Already in a book like Daniel, it's become this way of describing the whole of time until the end. And First Peter um, talks about this idea of living here as strangers. On the other hand, the book of Jeremiah talks about living in exile and actually putting down roots and building homes and marrying, getting on with your normal life. So once again, you have a balance here, I think. We want to be constructive members of our society in exile, but on the other hand, it's exile and that will almost certainly cause trouble at some point and difficulty. And so I actually think this metaphor um, ought to inform all of our Christian thinking, actually. And um, one of the other texts that is one of my go-to texts at the moment on this would be Psalm 137, where um, I see that as a psalm that really represents to each of us the disciplines of exile. What do we need to, to get on in exile. And the way I, I have put it is, I think that psalm is about remembering who you are. It's about resisting where you can or where you must. But it's also about trusting that God is in control and God will bring the kingdom in the end. I think, again, that's a great text for parsing out what exile looks like for the, for the Christian. That's really fantastic, and I love it because I think oftentimes these conversations end with a bit of a downer. You know, like culture is terrible, and this is terrible. And everything's going to everything's hell. Great, everything's terrible. And so those three things of remembering, resisting, and trusting. Ian, could you just work us through those, what those look like for us today? Well, remembering who we are, we've talked a bit about that because the question is, okay, let's put it the other way. What are the things that make us forget? 
Now, earlier on, you guys, I thought, rather optimistically said that parents spend six hours of their day with their kids when they come home from school. It's not quite true, though, is it? If you actually ask what most of us are spending our time doing, even with our kids, it's screen time of one sort. Well, or I don't another. know. Did I? I didn't say. I said this. I said they spend six hours with their teacher. <laughs> oh, did you? I oh, thought. Yeah. I thought we had a rather optimistic it, I, view. My, my hands up. I'm, I'm the guilty okay. one. So here's the thing, right? If you ask yourself the question, how? How, for most of us, how is our moral imagination being shaped? What is shaping our desires? Netflix. Yeah, exactly. That that would be my answer. The the viewing statistics on Canadians watching TV and, and being on their computer are staggering in terms of how many hours a day and a week we're doing that. So here we have a situation where most people have maybe a 25 minute sermon in their church if they're lucky. Right, most I'm talking averages here, once a week, and maybe the keeners will also be part of a Bible study group. Ian, can I, can I interject just really quickly? When you say moral imagination, what, what are you talking about? Uh, so the things we talked earlier on about the things that seem obvious to us. Right? Okay. So the the world picture, the world view we have that that then tells us. The imagination we have of the moral landscape, the the, the nature of right and wrong, what does that look like? Where is that coming from? And I would say that if you're trying, if we are trying to combat that many hours of of input in ourselves and our children with a 25-minute sermon once a week and an optional Bible study, that we are deluding ourselves. And it will not be surprising if we end up finding we're really not thinking as Christians at all, right? And that's where the whole educational thing comes in. So what is it nowadays that is catechizing us? There's another old, long Christian word, catechizing, the idea of instructing. What is it that's catechizing most of us? And the answer appears to be Netflix, which I think has about 58% of the market share, I think, in terms of those services. Definitely has my vote. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And our our usage of the internet. Because every time we're on there, we're involving ourselves in stories. Sometimes they're Christian stories. Often they're not. If we think that traffic is not coming over the bridge into our minds and hearts, we're just, we're just not thinking. So remembering, um, the Greeks had this uh, idea of the waters of Lethe, I think is how you pronounce it. This was a river that ran through Hades and made people forget their past existence. And so I I find myself wanting to ask, what are the waters of Lethe now? What are the things that make us forget who we are? So that's number one. Resisting, well, we talked a bit about that. It's not just a matter of resisting the ideological impulses coming through school. We're called to some measure of resistance in our work. We're called to some measure of resistance in our political lives. Uh, Constructive resistance, I would say, not just for the sake of being obnoxious, but because there are important issues. And I think we, I hope, maybe this is optimistic too, I hope that we would be those among those who want to argue for a pluralistic society in which people in which people are not oppressed in any way. You know, there's a broad agreement, we try and live and let live. I think that whole idea is under enormous threat at the moment. But then, of course, we Christians have not always done a stellar job of when we've had the power. So this is a human thing. It, it, it plays both ways. Um, so resisting... And then trusting, of course, probably we 
go on to say so much about that, maybe. But it is, it is possible to get quite dispirited about the nature of the world sometimes. Uh, I find it very easy to, partly because I spend too much time watching my computer screen, so the two things are attached to each other. But so when you find yourself feeling the weight of the world on you, and of course that's crushing, because which, which of us has the ability to do very much about the world, really? What is our Christian calling at that point? Well, it's to remember who we are and to get back to the trusting, praying, lamenting, you know, doing the small things we can because we believe actually that all those small things will be gathered up into something meaningful at the end. But like Jesus and the loaves and the fishes, you know, all the fragments that were left. Ian, if you just want to talk just briefly about what do you do in your personal life uh, to move you to faith and to trusting? Like, what are those actions that you take that help you in that regard? Well, you know, I think it's just that at this point in my life as an older person, I have um, practiced the habits of thought that when I find myself going in a certain way, I just notice. Mm. And I deliberately and consciously bring myself back into the story. I remind myself that I am not God, thank God. Mm -hmm. And that the expectation that lies on me is not to save the world or change the world. The expectation that lies on me is to treat my wife and my children well and to treat my neighbors well and to do the little things I can uh, to pursue a Christian vision of society, broadly speaking, in terms of the public good and all of that. And just to get back into a human scale, one of the problems with the internet, and it's a dreadful problem with Twitter and Facebook is that we just know too much about everything or we think we do that's just which is even worse and so everything that happens in the world is now like in your face and somehow it's my fault or I ought to do something I ought to be reacting and of course that is just impossible it's crushingly impossible and again if we're not careful, we get drawn out of our own story because now we begin to agree that that's the, that thing that happened 10 minutes ago, that's the only important thing in the world. Mm. But actually, within the Christian story, that's just another thing, really. It's another bad thing. It could be a very bad thing, but it's not the only thing. That sin that was just tweeted, that's not the only sin that was committed in the last 15 minutes in the world. You know, So just sitting back... Um, taking these things very seriously, of course, but always in perspective, always in proportion, always within the whole sweep of the story. Mm. Oftentimes, we can do quite literally nothing about the world except pray mm. and get on with our small bit of it with a renewed determination to at least make our small bit of it better. Um, the answer is probably in there mm -hmm. and I say that as somebody who has a natural inclination to pessimism I, mm -hmm. I think everyone who grows up in northern Europe just because of the weather uh, has a natural <laughs> tendency towards pessimism um, I grew up in central Alberta where I was frozen for most of the year yeah. and I, I think there's an, a possibility that there is a little bit of that pessimism there at least the sun shines when you're cold well I mean climate has a lot to do I think with worldview. 
Mm. I mean, there's a reason why Italians tend to be a bit happier, right? I'd be happy if I had <laughs> a vineyard and a sunshine, like for, you know? I've been thinking about this. There's so. the, the, the idea that, um, you know, C.S. Lewis said, uh, you know, I didn't come to Christianity because I wanted it to make me happy. He says, I always knew a bottle of port would do that. Mm -hmm. And there's the story of, of St. Augustine as he's on his way to deliver a lecture uh, in front of the, you know, the, the ruling class of the day, and he's trying to be this upward, upwardly mobile philosopher, this citizen who's going to be raised into the upper echelons of society, and his, the goal of his mother is that he becomes this person, and the goal of his entire education that his parents sent him into is that he grows up into this, and he's just overwhelmed and stressed out, and he walks by, a, a, you know, it's early in the morning, and he walks by this sort of like homeless drunk man, who just seems thrilled with life. He's just very gleeful. And he's going, what am I doing? Like, that guy seems happy, and I actually thought this would make me happy, but I don't have it. And it's, it's it, Leslie Newbegin was a, was a missionary and a, a great missiologist. He studied the doctrine of mission, and, and he's a great theologian who's gone to be with the Lord. But he, he, he said, I'm neither a pessimist or an optimist. I'm a Christian. And I think for me, that's where I have to go back there because I can go into dark places in my, my thinking and I can also get into this sort of hopeful. But, but to set the right expectation is to say, I'm not building anything in my life on the, the temporal moments and the, the nuances of my day as opposed to allowing actually the promises, the eternal God, the, the promises he's made to me, those need to inform my life more, more so than the fleeting moments of the day or the, the, the thing I just saw on Twitter or the information I just took in on Facebook or, or you know, a, a, in line with what you're saying is to actually ground ourselves as part of the bigger, grander story that does have a happy ending. Absolutely. It goes back to our conversation about progress earlier on. Um, people sometimes, there seems to be a, a determination among some people to categorize everybody else, right? And so I, I will get asked a question like, are you a conservative or a progressive? You know, and I object to the question. I just, those are my options. Who said those are my options, you know? But if I can't get away with objecting to the question, I will usually go on to say, well, I, I don't think a Christian can really be either one because that's switching your Christian identity for some other identity. I think that we ought to be appropriately conservative where that's called for, and we ought not to be against progress where progress is clearly good. But as C.S. Lewis said, sometimes progress means going back to the fork in the road when you took a wrong turning and mm -hmm. beginning again. Yeah. So... You're quite right. I mean, again, I, all of these identities, it bothers me when Christians are prepared to accept other identity markers as fundamental yes. definitions, because I think the gospel calls us to leave all of that aside. I'm primarily, I am centrally, and in, in many ways only, a follower of Christ. And then I happen also to be a whole bunch of other things, but... But if you're bringing a Christian mind, you can actually then afford to say things like, well, yes, that's quite good, but what about this? Or this is not so great over here. You're not bound into ideologies. We're living in ideological times. It's all or nothing for many people. Either you're with me or against me. Either you agree completely with me on everything, or I'll kill you on Twitter. Right? Mm -hmm. One thing. Cancel culture. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's not it's toxic. Yeah. It's toxic. It can't possibly lead to good outcomes. Mm -hmm. 
I think uh, bringing a Christian mind to this, we can afford to discriminate. We can make judgments. We can say, well, this is a good emphasis and that's a good emphasis and we mustn't forget this other thing. But all of that has to be reintegrated back into our Christian story. We cannot simply embrace other people's stories because they shout very loudly Mm. about them. Well, Ian, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with Brett and I about these things and more, and I'm sure we'll have you on again for our thrice appearance. Um, Ian, if you want to just end by telling us a bit about uh, the book, its title, where we can get it, all that kind of stuff. Yes, the book will be published, I believe, in late summer, early fall. It will be published by Baylor University Press. The title is Seeking What is Right, The Old Testament and the Good Life. Um, You'll certainly be able to get it through the Regent College Bookstore and then at the moment, I imagine the normal online uh, uh, things, because uh, you know, to, given the fact that COVID appears right. to be going on for a bit, I think we have to work on the assumption. So you should be able to, for all I know, it the title may already be out there. I don't know if you search for it, whether you find anything, but um, it will certainly then. I think, I hope, it will provide a a really good resource for people who want to think about their Christian faith in terms of how we live our lives mm. and to really wrestle with some some contemporary hot-button issues. I mean, we haven't actually explicitly mentioned the whole transgender issue, which is a huge cultural kind of phenomenon in which these issues of how I know who I am are central. And we haven't talked about some other quite pressing issues of the, of the present time, but in the book I do try and say something about each of these hot-button, controversial yeah. topics. Well, I'm just grateful for, uh, for your careful thought. I'm grateful for the, the, the nuance that you seek to bring to, at times, a polarizing conversation of this or that, whereas you're saying, hang on a second, we're actually part of a better story. Um, and so just thankful for your scholarship in this area and these areas and, uh, and for what you bring to the body of Christ City, even as we're allowed to engage with you in this format um, on our, our podcast and just the way that uh, having your thinking uh, forming us as a community uh, in these areas and beyond. And yeah, you know, as, as you talk about wanting the church to lean into this kind of thinking and, and this formation of what does it look like to, to have children in a SOGI environment in the public school system and how can we equip people to do that? And you're saying the church needs to do better and I say amen. amen. And then also amen and help us. And, mm-hmm. and I know that that's, that's your heart for it. So we're just thankful for all of those, those, uh, those things and, and thankful for your work. Thanks, Ian. Great pleasure, guys. Let's do it again sometime. All right. Here Be Dragons is a podcast of Christ City Church in Vancouver. You can find us online at herebedragonspodcast.com or follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Dragon Podcast.